Hi, welcome to Qubytes, your bite-sized pieces of quantum computing. My name is Rene from Valorum Reply, and today we're going to have a deep dive into quantum hardware development. And for this, I'm very honored to have a special expert guest today, Kaylee Casella. Hi, Kaylee, and welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So before I start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background as it relates to quantum computing, physics, computer science, and so on? Sure. So I got my bachelor's at Indiana University, South Bend in 2011. I went on to get a PhD uh, in physics at University of Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley. And then I did a postdoc um, afterwards and joined Atom Computing uh, in March of 2020. Um, so I've been working here for almost two years and I'm a senior quantum engineer. Wow. And like this is a, a great segue into the first questions because you know, oftentimes in this show, we talk a lot about the software stack on quantum computers, right? And like, for example, what you can already do with quantum inspired computing and, and these kind of things. But um, today we're going to talk about the hardware, right? And so, but, you know, for the whole audience here to be fully inclusive, can you just give us a high level overview of all the components that are involved in a real physical quantum computer? Yeah, certainly. I, I mean, I can try. So I, I like to think of it in kind of a few different areas. Um, Every quantum computer needs qubits, right, and uh, gates. Um, so we have our, our platform, um, our qubit register. And with a neutral atom quantum computer, we have a lot of back-end hardware to create this qubit register and to reload this qubit register every tens of quantum operations. Um, and then we have our, you know, the, the hardware that provides our gates. So with a neutral atom quantum computer, that's lasers and microwaves um, and lots of fun, uh, you know, optics, uh, electrical optical components, acoustic optical components. Um, and then we have a control system, um, which really is the, uh, the, the conductor, the timekeeper, um, which synchronizes uh, all of these different parts. And with a uh, neutral atom quantum computer, we you know, we take these atoms, we reload our register, perform operations, perform, perform circuits. Um, we can keep them around for a while, but eventually we do have to reload them again. So I guess that's to speak to how important the control system aspect is for our particular platform. But um, yeah, just qubits, gates, and then a control system. I would say those are the three, the three main components. Gotcha, gotcha. Um Basically, after you get these neutral atoms out of the ground state, right, you need to cool them. And, and cooling is a really a critical part to keep the qubits stable, right? And so these systems are typically cooled down to almost zero Kelvin or absolute zero, basically. Um, and this is performed with uh, a, a special kind of a technique where also a magnetic fields and lasers are involved, correct? Is that? Yeah. Okay. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And, and can you help us a little bit to put this into perspective? Like, what is the time required for this um, atomic preparation, basically, until you actually can do the computation, right? So what is, and also what is the kind of precision required, you know, and how do you actually cool down atoms with a laser? Yeah, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? Um, because we do start with this chunk of strontium in our case in an oven. Um, we have to heat the atoms to dissociate them in the solid. So we sublimate this chunk of strontium. And so we have this hot strontium gas. Um, and so from that point forward, uh, 
the name of the game is to cool the gas because, um, you know, when atoms are like buzzing around, um, you can just imagine intuitively things can't be done as precisely. Like, how are you going to, you know, capture this buzzing atom in one of your optical traps? Um, so we do rely on a lot, you know, all of the techniques that have been developed over the last um, 30, 40 years of laser cooling. Um, you know, quantum mechanics says that light, you know, there's this, a wave particle duality of light. Um, so you can think in, in one aspect of what we're doing is just bombarding the atoms with little uh, photons, um, little balls of light, which have momentum. So, you know, if an atom is like buzzing or flying this way and we're just kicking it with light um, counter to its trajectory, we will eventually uh, slow it down and uh, slowing it down, it goes hand in hand with cooling. Um, there are more sophisticated tricks we play where, like you said, we have magnetic fields to spatially couple um, a trapping, you know, a location for trapping the atoms. Mm -hmm. um, because just shining a laser beam at these hot atoms doesn't really say anything about uh, space, right? I mean, there there's no notion of, uh, you know, coupling uh, this cooling to a spatial location. Um, and it does have to be done very precisely. Um, right. You know, we're talking about hundreds of milliseconds, um, maybe a little bit longer of, of this sort of state preparation. Um, and, you know, trapping these atoms to a region at the end within, you know, millimeters, micrometers, um, because eventually we want to load them into an array of traps where the traps are spaced by micrometers. Um, so it, it does have to be done exceptionally well, um, but these, uh, these tricks and techniques have been pioneered in the field. Um, and we're really, you know, just kind of following along in the footsteps of other academic groups. Um, yeah, so. You, you just make it sound as it's so easy, but it's, it's not. It's uh, very, very much state of the art what you're doing there. And uh, well, impressive. Thank you for explaining it so nicely. Now, now I understand it. So like you said, like bombarding, basically, well, laser is emitting photons, right? So you're sending these photons into the direction and basically slowing them down, which in the end, you know, results in cooling. Uh, so nice explained. Thank you. Thank you. And now, now it makes sense for me as well. <laughs> <laughs> I, sh I should say at the end, we go from 400 degrees Celsius to um, 10 micro Kelvin. So right. we're talking about uh, 10 to the 7 is that 10 to the 7? <laughs> 10 to the 7, like, reduction in uh, this, like, temperature value. Um, so it's, I mean, thinking about it, uh, it's, it's quite impressive, you know, that people have figured out how to do this. And it, it just in a few hundred milliseconds, you said, right? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, so much, so, so little time to actually fix any errors and, and things like that. So yeah, uh, precision is really, really highly required also in terms of like the whole apparatus, right? Like you got to make sure, like if you, if you make little, little changes, you have to uh, probably try out a few things and a lot of try and error, I guess. Huh? Like Absolutely. And that's what I should say. I've spent my PhD and postdoc studying is working on these platforms and, mm -hmm. um, the quantum engineers here, I mean, that's kind of our our specialty is building these sorts of systems in this sort of way and doing it uh, quickly, right, and well. Yeah. And, and another really amazing part about the neutral atom approach um, was when, when I talked with your colleagues, Denise Ruffner and, and Robin Cox in previous uh, Cubites episodes, 
uh, you can keep those much longer stable, right? She, she mentioned like 10 seconds or something like this, where you can keep the qubits in a stable state, which is very impressive. If you compare it to other approaches, like with semiconductor or trapped ions and so on, it's just, what is it, nanoseconds, milliseconds or something like this, right? Where they can keep it stable. And so, well, you can do probably much, much more with 10 seconds of stable computation. Yeah, our coherence time is tens of seconds long. And I mean, really, that's coming about because we're using, you know, we're using neutral atoms, we're using the universe's like two level system, we're not using a fabricated um, two level system that, you know, someone made. Um, yeah. it, it really is as, uh, as perfect as it can get. Um, there are subtleties there. But um, yeah. So um, looking at your background, of course, you're not in a lab right now. Beautiful uh, pictures there, actually, or or like decoration. Um, yeah. So <laughs> can, can you tell us, since you're not in the lab, but what does a typical workday for you look like? And uh, are you mostly actually working in the lab on actual hardware or more on a, on a computer and doing computations and simulations and figuring out certain things or... And, and also, of course, what are the big challenges actually and from scaling to from a more, like say, scientific physical system, like an apparatus in the end, into this uh, commercial quantum computer, uh, I think it's called Phoenix, right, for item computing? Yes. Yeah, our first our first generation computer is Phoenix, which is in Berkeley, what I'm working on. Um, and a typical day can be all of the above. Um, you know, I'm asked this question, kind of, what do you do as a quantum engineer? And it always uh, kind of stalls me a bit because we, you know, I, I work on software, I work on hardware. Um, at the end of the day, I'm one of the people that see the physical system we have and um, are working to abstract it to the powerful quantum computer we know it can be. So it does require, you know, work in automation and calibration, um, work on this process of cooling to make it better and more robust, um, working on our, our single qubit and two qubit gates to make the fidelities higher, um, increasing the atoms we're trapping. So uh, you you kind of do many different things. And um, I think that's why I enjoy this job so much because it's never boring and you get to learn a bunch of different skills. But it's hard to quantify or, you know, describe. Um, I do spend a lot of my time in lab, um, uh, wrangling lasers, certainly. Um, one of the challenges of making our system um, commercial, right, is to uh, remove the, or increase the uptime and remove kind of the human intervention uh, that atomic physicists need to, to do. So uh, that's always in mind. Um, how can we make this more hands-off? How can we do this better or um, add machine learning or, you know, have some sort of a calibration routine? Um, and I think that we really got, uh, you know, when, so I started in March of 2020, I had three days in the office before there was a shelter in place county order. Um, and I was able to watch the other people, the more senior people at the company, we had few remote, remote utilities. Um, we still needed somebody to come into the lab and turn on the laser. But, you know, by say May of that year, um, you could, you know, trap atoms like from your bedroom if you wanted to. So um, COVID has been challenging, but uh, it's been really interesting to see the company's approach to it. And 
you know, in ways I think forced us to really get a handle on the things that we need to have to be commercialable and, and, and to build these machines well. Um, so this was not the case in my postdoc lab. You, you definitely had to be there for every second of, uh, you know, the experiment, right? Gotcha, gotcha. Well, that's pretty impressive. And, and, and one way to say is like COVID, of course, accelerated a lot of like remote work, but now it also accelerated like remote quantum computing labs kind of a thing, right? And well, and, yeah. it's a first, and it's a first step to get to the kind of QAAS, like quantum as a service, right? Where you can then bring this Phoenix um, quantum computer into, well, s some place, and then you can schedule a job remotely via whatever quantum as a service provider, and then it will run on the actual hardware, but you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to tune it. And it's perfectly, like you said, is like, the goal is of course to make this happen, right? To That you don't need a lot of human intervention and like, things you need to tune and so on. Well, and COVID might have helped, well, a little bit with that. Well, if we, <laughs> yeah. if we want to see a, a, some positive things, right? Um, Absolutely. Well, this is awesome. Thank you so much, Kaylee, for all this explanation and the insights you shared today. Um, unfortunately, we're already a little bit at the end of the show, but um, we could talk for much longer and I would love to learn much more. But again, thank you so much for joining us today and explaining it so well. This is very much appreciated. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Well, and thanks everyone for joining us for yet another episode of Qubytes, your bite-sized uh, bite pieces of quantum computing. Well, watch our blog and follow our social media channels to hear all about the next episodes. And of course, visit our website to watch all the previous episodes from season one to five, where we also had other colleagues from uh, Kelly from Adam Computing, where we talked about a couple of other things. So you might want to see those as well. But anyhow, take care and see you soon. Bye-bye.